I'm proud of it, but I'm really happy that that journey that particular family were going through and, and people understanding of what drought is like, that was the thing that made me the happiest about because more people became aware of, of the actual situation. G'day and welcome to Life on the Land, a Grazy Her podcast telling stories about rural and regional women across Australia. I'm Emily Herbert, your host for this episode. Today we're speaking with Edwina Robertson. Now, if you don't know who that is, there's a very strong chance you've seen one of her photos. Eddie is a wedding photographer whose work is iconic in regional and rural Australia. The Queen of Dust has been shooting weddings in the bush and across the world for eight years, some of which have gone viral globally. Eddie grew up on a mixed farm outside Deepwater, New South Wales, with her two siblings, mum and stepdad. She was estranged from her biological father, who was tragically killed in a plane accident when she was just 12. After boarding school, she went on to study fashion in Sydney before working in real estate in Brisbane. Now, I picked up Eddie's story in 2013 when she was at a very low point. She had been in what she described a depressive state for four months since she found out the guy she thought she was going to marry had been unfaithful. Unemployed, and with no idea where she wanted to go in life, she sat down and wrote a list of what she wanted from a career. Four things instantly sprang to mind. It's quite confronting when you're in a, you're 27 and you've had businesses before and you don't know where you want to go. So I thought a really good start for me would be to write a list of my career must-haves. What would I want to get out of a career, regardless of what that career was? So I had, uh, I think, four or five things on that list, and they were to travel the world at other people's expense, because let's be honest, who doesn't want to do that? (laughs) Uh, Secondly was I wanted an income that wasn't capped. So the harder I worked, the more money I made. I wasn't sort of, didn't have a ceiling to that, that income. I also wanted flexible hours. I've never worked nine to five. I don't think I ever will work nine to five. I don't like working nine to five. I like to have that flexibility to work a few days a week or work seven days a week or whatever's going on. So that was really important. Um, That's sort of how I work. I sort of, when I work, I work really hard. And when I'm not working, I don't do anything uh and then the fourth thing was at the time being 27 I just sort of uh was sort of in that predicament of no work because I'd just been through a breakup um I was supposed to be moving interstate with that person and that didn't work out so I thought at the time you know in five years where do I want to be personally and I ideally at the time I thought oh well hopefully I would have a, a you know lifelong partner by then um, maybe be starting in five years time starting a young family and I wanted to ideally I wanted to be a full-time mum yet I also wanted to have the ability to work a couple weekends a month to earn some income because I think that's really important for women to have their own identity still whilst being a mother and a partner and doing everything else we tend to do uh, so of all those things on my on my fall list that's actually what allowed me and what 
sort of pushed me into getting into becoming a wedding photographer because being a wedding photographer really ticked all those career boxes that I really wanted. Were you classically trained with a camera? No. <laughs> I openly call myself a photographer, F-A-U-X. <laughs> uh, never done any formal training with a camera. I've just taught myself. And to be honest, if you came up to me and said, oh, Eddie, how do I, what do I do on my camera to make this happen? I'd tell you I wouldn't know because <laughs> that's still the truth. <laughs> so, no, no formal training. Um, but there's a lot more to being a photographer than just taking a photo. And I think that's really important and that's what I try and express to people because if you can't interact with your clients or if you don't know how to make people feel comfortable in front of the camera or make them feel vulnerable to get those really emotional, beautiful shots, then mm. that's hockey battle. <laughs> mm. So how did you actually begin? How did you launch this new career? Well, literally after I had decided that I was going to become a wedding photographer, I started a Facebook page, <laughs> Edwina Robertson Photography, and I put on Facebook, I told everyone that I was becoming a wedding photographer. And that was it. That was literally it. I just backed myself 100% of the way. I had no fear of failure. At the time, I um, was in Brisbane. There was over a 1,000 registered wedding photographers. Uh, and there was probably an, another 300 what we'd call weekend warriors, so people who sometimes shoot weddings or are photographers on the weekend. Mm. And I just, if failure wasn't even an option, that wasn't even something I just thought, right, I'm going to do this because it's going to tick all the things I want on my career list and what I want to get out of a career. So great. And <laughs> faked it till I sort of made it. <laughs> So how did niching as a country wedding photographer change the course of your photography? So very early in my first year as a wedding photographer, I did a lot of workshops. Um, so I really committed and invested in going. I went overseas a few times. I worked with real, like the best photographers in the industry. That was really important to learn from the best people. No point learning from someone who's only been doing it a couple of years, learn from the people who are top notch. Um, and I actually did a, a bit of a mentoring session with a, a Brisbane photographer who was at the, the highest of the high in Brisbane at the time. And he said, so I went to boarding school. Um, I was 27. A lot of my friends were starting to get married. So he said, why don't you specialise in country weddings? And at the time, no one was doing that. <laughs> what are you looking for when shooting a wedding? Because some of your photos have become truly iconic. What is it that is the magic recipe? I like to create a bit of drama in my weddings. I like them to be almost like an art piece. Something that's different, unique, kind of uh, represents the landscape of where I'm shooting. Obviously, um, for a big portion of my wedding photography career, We've been experiencing drought in Australia mm. and I've really tried to make the most of that. I've tried to turn something that's quite sombre and difficult and hard into something that's quite beautiful and romantic and pretty, I guess. Well, you are called um, the Queen of Dust. Where did that name come from? Oh, a little bit self-titled there. <laughs> <laughs> but I, um, I was very fortunate 
fortunate and unfortunate in some ways uh, to have a photo that went viral in 2015. Uh, so I shot a wedding up in Blackall in Western Queensland. The family had been in drought for four years at this time and the bride's family was from Blackall and they had destocked not long before the wedding. So on the wedding day, it was quite bittersweet. Mm. You know, they're going through this really hard time where there's a lot of uncertainty with income, with just living in general, and yet their oldest daughter was getting married. I guess I hadn't really realised how bad drought was until I saw that and I saw the local people in the community and what they'd been experiencing and saw the joy this wedding brought to town. And I really wanted to share that message with my followers on Facebook at the time. So I think I had around four or 5,000 followers on Facebook at that particular point. So after I shot that wedding, I shared a photo of the bridal party walking across a dusty uh, cricket pitch in Blackall, which looked like a clay pan. It was, there was nothing to it. And uh, some people have thought it was a dust storm, but I actually had someone out the side of my frame doing some, some burnouts in a car and creating a bit of dust. And I had the bridal party walking through the dust. And I shared this particular image on Facebook and I shared the struggles and the mental health um, ramifications of being in drought for four years and what it's like to have to destock and not have any income and all the uncertainty and the hardships of that. And I thought, you know what, if I can share this message with 5,000 people and it makes a few people understand what drought's like, great, that's wonderful. And I gave a bit of an incentive for people to share this post and this image and story with other people. And so I, <laughs> I said, for every share of this post over the next, uh, 24 hours I will personally donate three dollars to type the black dog foundation which is a charity for rural and um, regional mental health <laughs> and to be honest Em I thought this post would get shared a hundred times like I thought oh yeah I might get a bit a little bit of traction but I can afford three hundred dollars that's fine oh my goodness <laughs> it got shared 4,975 times oh in 24 goodness. hours now, if you want to know the quickest way to lose weight, this is it. <laughs> you couldn't <laughs> afford to eat? <laughs> oh, yeah. Just the heart palpitations and the stress and watch. Uh, so I posted on the Monday night quite late, about 8.30, 9 o'clock. And then the next morning at 6 a.m. when every rural farmer's waking up and sitting there having their wheat bix and toast and on Facebook scrolling when it was getting shared 100 times per minute, I was like, oh, God. <laughs> Without that wallet, um, Eddie. Yeah, so $15,000 later as a donation, which, look, very happy to do, but it went viral. That oh, It was a crazy, crazy period of, of my life with um, an insane amount of traction. It was seen all over the world. I was interviewed on CNN. Uh, I was featured in the New York Times. Um yeah, all over every mainstream media in Australia, Huffington Post. Oh, it was it's just nuts. I don't I don't think I'm proud of it, but I'm really happy that that story and that that journey that particular family were going through and, and people understanding of what drought is like for many rural and regional communities, that was the thing that made me the happiest about because more people became aware of, of the actual situation.
Well, it is. So, yeah, it was an interesting time. <laughs> it, it is such extraordinary exposure for um, many people's reality. That is what people are mm. going through. And that really did drive you going forward, didn't it? Tell me a little bit about the mm. other projects that you took on then to expose drought to the masses. Yeah, so it, that, yeah, that particular image, so I'd been shooting for about two, two and a half years. And so that really did propel my career and it allowed me to be a representation for people of the bush. You know, I'm not unaware that I make my income from rural communities and I'm very grateful for that. And I'm very, um, yeah, very thankful for that opportunity. So to give back is a big part of, of what I like to do. And ultimately, I think this, this wasn't on my original career list, but shooting weddings has allowed me to give back a lot more than I probably would have in any other circumstance. Well, they do say that a picture, you know, speaks a thousand words and some of those images were pretty harrowing. What was that experience like for you personally? Mm, um, it was hard. It was hard. I, um, I actually, at the time I was living in Toowoomba and I returned and I was pretty out of sorts, to be honest, because every day for those two months, I was listening to these quite negative heartfelt stories, you know, having grown men who I've never met ring me and confess that they were suicidal. And I, I didn't have the capacity or the skill set to um, support these people in the best way they needed. I'm not a therapist. I'm not a psychologist or a counsellor. And I had counselling. I had um, There was um, some uh, over-the-phone counselling I did whilst I was doing it because I needed support too. But actually, when I returned to the Toowoomba, I just, there was, I was quite angry. I was quite, I just didn't feel myself. And I actually had some PTSD from that experience. So I'm fine now. I sort of was able to get onto it quite quickly. I didn't feel like depression for me. I'd had depression previously. It didn't feel like that. I wasn't down or feeling really low. I just had this, I just wasn't happy. I just was angry and everything irritated me and I wasn't sleeping correctly. So that was quite an interesting experience in itself. But um, yeah, it was, I guess, something I didn't expect to happen, but I can absolutely, looking back, see why it did happen, seeing the kind of empathy and, and care and the listening and the helping I did for all those people for such a period of time in, in some of the toughest time of their lives. So. Mm. Yeah, that was kind of the repercussions of that. But if I had a chance to do it again, I would do it in a heartbeat. Mm, amazing. Well, you did hit the road again. Was it a couple of years later you decided to, yeah. to hit the road in <laughs> another project? Yeah. yeah. Tell me about that. <laughs> oh, that was fun. <laughs> so that was actually two thousand that was actually two thousand seventeen, so the year before one bucket. Um so I had uh, I think it was actually at the end of 2015, I watched the movie Tracks. Now, I'm not sure if you've heard of this, M. It's, um, it's also a book. It was a, a book originally, like all good movies are, um, about a woman called Robin Davidson. And she walked three camels across the desert from Alice Springs to Broome in the 70s. And she was only, oh, I think she was about 27 at the time. And 
it was this incredible story of adventure and free spirit and everyone told her she couldn't do it and you know standard <laughs> like, you can't do this this is not possible all that sort of stuff and I saw this movie and I thought wow how incredible is that this young woman doing something like this that everyone told her wasn't possible so I then started thinking I want to have my own adventure but it has to be modern day you know we're talking we're in 2000s things are a bit different I've got technology so I thought, well, what would make it challenging for me to travel around Australia? Well, I'll do it with no money. That would be challenging for me. Uh, so it was sort of nearly 18 months in the process of organising, obviously because of the nature of being a wedding photographer. I book weddings a long way out, so I had to make sure there was a gap in my calendar. And in um, May 2017, yeah, literally nearly four years ago, I set off in an old... 1979 uh, Toyota Land Cruiser, a short wheelbase Land Cruiser, shorty 40. And I drove around Australia for 100 days with no money, just my dog and a free spirit. <laughs> and basically, I bartered my photography skills for food, fuel, and accommodation. So I went, I was invited to stations and people who sort of knew about the project. I went and visited people, I took photos for them, and they fed me, gave me some fuel, gave me a bed and off I went. Um, so that was a magnificent journey. I learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about what I was capable of. Some days it was hard. So that was a really great opportunity for me to go into the depths of some of the deepest parts of Australia, most isolated parts of Australia and really show what, what happens and what it's like to live on a station and, and live remotely. So. It was really cool. I, I, I'm super glad I did that project. Um, I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> it was hard, uh, but it was rewarding and a lot of beautiful thinking time too. It was quite driving at 80 kilometres an hour around Australia is quite, quite calming for the soul, I think. And, you know, lots of deep thought and just sometimes just tuning out and just putting some tunes on and going, going with the flow. So yeah, it was really, really amazing experience. We'll be back with Edwina in just a moment, but now a message from today's sponsor. This episode of Life on the Land is brought to you by Queensland's oldest law firm, Reese R. and Sydney Jones. Located in Rockhampton, central Queensland, Reese R. and Sydney Jones offer legal expertise and representation across a wide array of legal services. The rural lawyers at Reese R. and Sydney Jones know the law of the land and are proud to offer specialised agribusiness services, including business restructuring, conveyancing, applicable stamp duty law advice and succession, and estate planning. The agribusiness experts at Reese R and Sydney Jones value strong personal relationships with their clients and understand their family businesses. To find out more, head to reesejones.com.au. That's R-E-E-S-J-O-N-E-S.com.au. Or give them a call on 07 
It sounds like social media has just been so pivotal to your success. How did you grow mm-hmm. your following and how did you learn how to make images go viral or reach such an engaged audience? Ah, uh, look, I don't think, um, I don't think there's any kind of secret to that. I think for me, I've always been quite open and honest on social media. I think being authentic and sharing the good and the bad is really, really important for people who follow me. You either like it or you don't. I'm not, you know, I'm not for everyone and I'm okay with that. But I think for a lot of people, they're too scared to be themselves. We're all very similar in some ways. Prime example, before getting into weddings, I'd gone through this breakup with his boyfriend and I had quite severe depression for four months. Mm. And I've spoken about that other women that follow me that will assimilate with that they've lost the person they thought they were going to love uh, sorry marry and you know they've spiraled downwards you know the mental health's gone into decline it happens we're human we're all having human experiences and i think it's really important in getting back to the social media and, and building a following just being yourself and if people don't like that that's okay you don't have to be liked by everyone but people who do like you will love you. And I don't sort of wake up every day going, oh, I really want to build my following. It's just happened organically. And I'm very mindful now um, of my followers. And I have a lot of young, influential women who follow me. And I just think I have this thing where you don't have to be an influencer per se. You don't have to be a celebrity or a supermodel or something like this to actually have effect on people. You can just be yourself and still really um, inspire people or influence people in a, in a way that they know they're human. I'm human. You're human. We're all human. We're all having, we all have our shit days. We all have our great days. I really like the quote, you can be the juiciest peach in the world, but there'll always be someone who doesn't like peaches. And I think that's probably, I think that's probably (laughs) very uh, prevalent in social media. I guess the question is, and coming from someone whose career was built on the back of social media, what is the fine line between uh, being yourself and being engaging and authentic and also not ugly crying on um, your Insta reel because you still want to be a professional and you have a product or a service that you'd like people to invest in perhaps, uh, even if that brand is yourself. So what is that fine line and, and how do you tread that? Oh, that's a good question. I think for me, people do like positivity. Don't get me wrong. People do like to see the good and see the happy. I think that's very important. I think there is a lot of negativity out there, you know, news for instance. Um, so sometimes if I'm going through a bit of a bad space, I might bring it up on social media once and then that might be it sort of thing. Or it might only come up a couple of times. I'm not going to dwell on things because the other thing is too, I have, professionals in my life to help me get my I don't lean on my following to help me I might share it with them what I'm going through but I don't lean on them that's not their job is to build me up I don't turn to them to build me up I go and see my therapist I go and see my energy healer I go and see my kinesiologist I go and see the people who know me and know 
exactly what I'm going through and who I pay to help me. That's not my followers job. You obviously know what you're doing because, you know, you do have such a fab engaged audience and also you launched a social media uh, course last year, women making gravy. Tell me about the pivot and as a wedding photographer, when a global pandemic hits and weddings are culled, what were your initial thoughts and how did you then pivot into this course? <laughs> oh dear. I was like, shit. <laughs> okay. Um, didn't expect this. Um, but true to my nature, I took the lemon, I squeezed it and I made some lemonade. So I, um, started doing some like sort of online mastermind groups with a few business people um, to maybe give them some ideas of how to grow their business. And then after a few weeks of doing that, I decided I could actually turn it into a business of teaching rural women how to run their own social media, particularly Instagram. So I created Women Making Gravy. And for six months last year, that was an amazing business that, kept me going mentally it wasn't the finances so much I was worried about last year it was the fact that I was like what am I going to do for six months of not working because I need purpose every day when I get up if I don't have something to do and no purpose and no reason to get out of bed my mental health declines rapidly so that was my greatest fear I need to give myself something to do to get me through that six month period. So what is the magic number of posting? Let's talk some practicalities. Yeah, sure. Oh, look, if you could post two to three times a week in terms of on your feed, that is wonderful. So when you put a post up, it gets around 48 hours worth of traction. Okay. So if you put a post up on Monday, it's still going to be seen on people's feed um, or in people's uh, like when they're scrolling Wednesday, maybe even Thursday morning. So you get a bit, a fair bit of length out, longevity out of that particular post. Um, I also think it's about quality, not quantity. If you could post twice or three times every week of really quality content, fantastic. I see people that post like four or five times a day and I just zone out. I don't even see it anymore because I'm seeing too much of it. So quality over quantity that's really important second big tip i'd like to give you is what we call a carousel now a carousel is when you add more than one uh content piece to your post so you either put up you can put up to 10 content pieces per post so um in a carousel so you could either put up one image and a video or four images and three videos or six videos or whatever else you, whatever, however you want to mix up your content. But I don't know if you've noticed this M when you're scrolling, you're scrolling through everyone else's stuff. You might see an image, right? Say your friends just had a baby. So you might see an image of that baby. And then the next day you're scrolling again and you see a photo of your friends holding the baby and you click on that, particular um, image and then it's actually the second image of that post so you flick back to the first image which was the baby photo you saw yesterday mm. so having carousels and having multiple content pieces in your carousel is great for getting more exposure instagram loves that because it keeps 
people on Instagram for longer. So what all Instagram wants to do is keep their users using the app for as long as possible because that makes them money. So that would be my top tip today for you is having at least more than one content piece per post when you when you do post. So if you have a shoe shop, a shoe store for instance, put a photo of maybe like the shoes by themselves and then the second photo is shoes with an outfit you know, the whole outfit together. Mm. So that's really super simple, but a really great way to get more exposure and um, and get more engagement with your content. And do hashtags work? And I see people put them in their comments. Is that a good idea? <laughs> yeah, hashtags absolutely do work. Uh, I tell this story often and I love this story. I um, was, oh, it was a couple of years ago, I was looking for a portrait photographer in Brisbane. Now, even as a photographer myself, I didn't know a lot of portrait photographers. So I started looking up, searching hashtags, portrait photographer Brisbane or Brisbane portrait photographer. And I went through, um, I looked at those particular hashtags and I went through all the images under those hashtags and I saved a few I really liked. Then I went back to the folder where all those saved images were and of the 10 images I saved, six were from the same photographer. Wow. That was a really good sign for me that I should use that photographer. I ended up spending six grand with her. Mm. So because she used those hashtags, she made money off me. So yes, it's a great way to be found by people who are looking for something specific. Um, Remember, big tip is remember your hashtags need to align with your content. So if you have a business, um, let's say you are an artist, so you do watercolour paintings. So you need to use the hashtags watercolour artist, watercolour paintings, you know, things that are specific to the actual product or the content piece you're trying to get out into the broader community. Mm-hmm. So that's really important. Having the hashtags that correlate well with whatever the content is that you're sharing. Mm, awesome. You, you know, use Instagram so beautifully and you are so candid on the platform. And I just wanted to touch briefly because, you know, of your four goals that you made when you were 27, one was having a family and being married. And at the stage, that's, that's not the case now, but you are really candid about that. And probably I imagine it would be such an important thing for other women to read and to see and to resonate with and to relate with. And I just wanted to ask you, why is that important for you to share and, and how's that going? Oh, how's that going? (laughs) How long have you got him? (laughs) Um, I think it's important to share because societally, is that a word? Sure is. (laughs) Is that a word? Okay, great. I'm glad it's a word. Uh, There are, expectations and pressures on women to get married, have kids. And I know that is changing slowly, um, definitely slowly. Look, I'm not going to deny I want that as much as everybody else. You know, imagine going to 400 weddings and that's all you are seeing is people in the highest day of their love like when you see that love and 
I try and share about it because I know yet again, my followers are a lot of younger, influential women. Um, dating is hard. Dating is really hard. <laughs> it's almost impossible some days. Um, uh, it's probably more of a way for me to, it's probably a little bit um, self-serving in a way that I have somewhere to not vent, but somewhere to share my experience of what it's like to date and, and the struggles I have in finding that, that partner. You know, I'm 36 next month. Um, I'm not going to settle. Um, I have done a lot of work on myself. I've had a lot of therapy. I had abandonment issues for a long period of time. I had some deep wounds from my childhood. I had a lot of things that really probably made me not ready for a long-term relationship or a serious loving healthy relationship for a long time and in the last few years I've really worked on those those wounds and and helping myself to really grow into myself and have my own self-worth and so I, I probably wasn't ready till about 32 33 realistically if I'm honest I wasn't really ready for that I self-sabotaged a lot of relationships and I think that allows other people to realize that there's nothing actually wrong with them but sometimes we need to by sharing what I'm going through and what I'm doing it allows them to give themselves permission to go, oh, you know what? I'm a bit the same. That's, I'm saying that, that, that correlation of, oh, I'm going through that too. Maybe I should go see a therapist or maybe I should go talk to someone about that. Or, you know, like my value doesn't come from the fact that I'm single. And that's something I really want to share with a lot of people. I've just had bad timing. It just hasn't happened. And yeah, that's hard. It's Sundays I wake up and I go, why? Where is he? <laughs> Where is he? Where is he? And I get frustrated because I'm an impatient person by, um, by most standards. But it's, it's not me. It's just the timing. And being really, I do a gratitude journal every night and I'm, um, I do my affirmations every morning. I'm quite a spiritual person. And it just hasn't happened yet for me. doesn't mean it's not going to, just hasn't been my time and that's okay. Mm. But other than that, my life is bloody incredible. I have an incredible life, but it's a choice, right? And it's a choice where I can get up and feel sorry for myself every day or I can go, you know what? It sucks. I can acknowledge it, but that's okay because it will happen. I have faith it'll happen. I have faith that I'll meet him and I'll get to have my own family one day. It just hasn't happened yet. and keeping being realistic about it and keeping positive about it is really important and not sort of going down the rabbit hole of feeling sorry for myself, which, which can happen, particularly if you see everyone else getting being loved up every weekend when it's in your face, it can, can be hard to keep pushing through that. That is such a powerful message, Eddie. Thank you so much for sharing that. So candidly and vulnerably, I think that would be a really important thing for so many people, men and women to hear. I absolutely, I really, I know that you have been trying to retire your photography (laughs) business for some time now, and they just won't let you go because you're too bloody good. But I, I know you're playing catch up from COVID, but once this year is done and your weddings have been ticked off, what's next for you? Ah, well, yes. Once I'm done this year, (laughs) uh, if it doesn't kill me in the process, (laughs) 
<laughs> I am starting a dress label. So I, I actually, when I left school, I studied fashion design and never did anything with it. And it's quite funny because I, I post, sometimes I post things that I think are quite profound or quite deep or, you know, emotional and, you know, and then something about like how I feel as a woman or my self-worth or something that's quite vulnerable. And then I'll get comments like, oh, where'd you get your dress from? <laughs> I've been having this for quite some time. And so I thought, you know what? Um, maybe I could do something with this. So I am starting this dress label. Um, it's going to be beautiful florals, um, really high quality pieces that fit um, women with a bit of a fuller bust and a bit more shape, um, easy wear, easy care items, none of this. You need to go to the dry cleaners. Like they're all going to be beautiful organic cottons. Um, so I am in the process of starting that now. Um, I'm getting my first samples made this week, which is really exciting. It's also scary. But, you know, much like starting my wedding photography business, you know, how many, let's be honest, let's, how many clothing labels are there out there? I wouldn't even have a clue. There's thousands upon thousands. But I'm just doing my thing and if I create things I like, then other people might like those, those designs and those styles too. So I'm not intimidated by what else is out there in the market. I've had a lot of people say, oh, fashion's really hard. Yeah, it may be hard, but it's something I really want to do and something I'm excited by. So I just, I'm just... You block out other people's negativity and other people's opinions because that's actually their fears and their insecurities. What's the worst thing that can happen, Em? Okay, I make a thousand dresses and I sell a hundred and I've got 900 dresses. Well, I'm never going to need to buy more clothes, am I? <laughs> I'm going to have a wardrobe full forever. I'm great. Um, so I'm not, I'm, yeah, I'm just going to have a go and see where it takes me I'm, I've got no expectations and I've kind of listened to my follow followership a little bit about the fact that a lot of people like what I wear and so hey I'll just run with it and carry on and see how it goes so I am excited though really excited I love that full circle back to your fashion designing days <laughs> as a 20 year old yeah. <laughs> Oh, thank you so much, Eddie. That has just been such an illuminating chat and you've been open and you've been very generous in, in everything you've shared. So loved it. Thank you so much. That's my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Em. Behind the stunning photos and the savvy Instagram game, there's a real candle with Eddie. She's not afraid to be completely vulnerable and that authenticity opens up all sorts of doors for real conversation. She's a seriously astute businesswoman and there were some very real takeaways when it comes to how we can all use social media better. I reckon we'll have to get her back for a full chat just on that. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean so much if you could share it with a friend and if you have a mini-mo, jump on the platform you're listening with and leave us a rating and a review. Thank you so much for listening. You're directly helping to give a voice to women in the bush, and we love you for it. Until next time, keep well. This is a Grazy Her podcast produced by Manson and Company. <laughs>